Please join me for a word of prayer as we remain standing. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Some years ago, we had a a basketball tournament as part of our uh, community outreach to... uh, it was facilitated by Graydon Zorzi. Uh, so it was a three-on-three tournament, and uh, was a lot of folks participating. And uh, so Graydon, as he began, the tournament said, all right, this is going to be a self-officiated tournament. Three-on-three, you know, 10, 15 games going at the same time, and you have to officiate teams by yourself. So if you see a foul, call a foul. But I want you to know if you reach an impasse and you can't figure it out, and you come to me, I guarantee no one is going to be happy. So it's to your benefit that you, you self-govern. You, you decide what is just and fair for yourselves. And Lo and behold, it happened. Two teams came to Graydon with some uh, dispute, and uh, Graydon said, they said, well, this person fouled me, that person fouled me, and Graydon said, wait, wait, wait. Before you, you go any further, I, I just want you, I just want to know, do you want me to fix this problem? Do you want me to decide what is just, or do you want to decide what is just? Because if I decide, no one's happy. I thought that's just brilliant. And as you know, it's most brilliant for, it's most brilliant for parenting. So on numerous occasions, my uh, two children will come to me and they'll say, Dad, another sibling wronged me. Or, uh, and I'll say, kids, before we go any further, do you want me to decide what is just and right and fair? Or do you want to decide what is just and right and fair? Because I guarantee if I decide what is, no one's happy. So it's to your benefit that you go and figure out uh, what is fair. Usually they'll go and decide what is fair for themselves. I bring that story up for two reasons. First reason is it illustrates kind of a universal uh, plea from the grieved. For those who feel like they've been treated unjustly. To go to the person in charge, the leader, and say, justice, please. Whether that be from Graydon in the basketball tournament or from a parent with a child. Please, I want justice. So that's the first point that illustrates. And the second is that uh, while I stand by the somewhat ambivalent approach to intervention, you go figure it out from Graydon to a three-on-three tournament or myself to children, you go figure it out. We could very easily envision circumstances in which that sort of ambivalence towards justice when the stakes are much higher, where that sort of ambivalence, you go figure it out, would be callous and wildly inappropriate. Because leaders should be concerned with justice. Please turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. If you know anything about Micah, you probably know this one passage. It's an Old Testament prophecy, and famously it anticipates the birth of a coming ruler who will be from a little town named Bethlehem. But in order to really understand this these few verses, and it really is just three verses, although they're very, very well known, in order for us to understand these three verses, we need to have a, a sense of the broader context because set in context, these couple of verses are really an answer or a solution to a problem. And so to understand and appreciate what Micah is telling us, we need to have a little bit of understand of 
understanding of the problem that Micah was addressing. In Micah's day, life was not fair. Now that was not the problem, because life is never fair. Life's not fair, so your parents uh, to children, whoever told you that life would be fair. And we all have probably uh, can call to mind any number of occasions in which we were treated unfairly or witnessed unfair treatment. Uh, you know, it's, health is not fair. You know, and I know pro- people who have smoked and have drank and they lived to age 105 uh, with no care for their, no care for their body. Yet, for some reason, ripe old age. And there's others who, you know, jog every day. And years are cut. It's not fair for years to be cut short. Where's the fairness in that? Fair, lack of fairness professionally. Maybe you, maybe someone you know have done everything that they are supposed to do in order to secure their next step in their profession. And all of a sudden the rules change and all these preparatory steps were just useless and the promotion went someplace else. Now life's not fair. It wasn't fair in Micah's day, it's not fair in our day. There are people who die who deserve to live. There are people who are poor who deserve to be rich. There are people who are rich who probably deserve to be poor. There are people who are unemployed who deserve to be employed. And that is the reality for Micah's day and it is the reality for our day as well. The problem of Micah's day was not fairness or lack thereof. The problem of Micah's day was ambivalence. Ambivalence especially from those in positions of leadership. So Micah chapter 3 verse 1 begins and gives you a taste of the entire critique of those first four chapters. Chapter 3 verse 1 says this. Here, you heads of Jacob, you rulers to the house of Israel, clearly in the crosshairs of his target are those people who have some burden of leadership and responsibility. You rulers of the house of Jacob, is it not for you to know justice? but you don't. You don't love justice. You love what is evil. You hate what is good. So back to my parenting analogy, there are certainly some little squabbles where I think this idea of you figure it out, you go decide what is just is appropriate. It's appropriate in officiating a three-on-three tournament. But that response is not appropriate for real injustice. And that is exactly what is happening in Micah's day. And that is exactly the response of the leaders. You guys go figure it out. Not my problem. Ambivalence to justice, if not, if not worse, uh, implicated in injustice. And if you read the rest of chapter 3, you certainly get the sense that these folks in leadership were not only ambivalent to justice, they were actually uh, perpetrating injustice in some pretty uh, vivid terms Micah describes. So what is the problem of Micah's day? It's not a lack of fairness. That's a problem of every day. The problem of Micah's day is leadership, which is ambivalent to real injustice. Is it not for you, O heads of the house of Israel? Is it not for you to know justice? Bad leadership is the problem. You can probably see what the solution is. The solution is good leadership. 
And so Micah anticipates a day when there will be a good leader. And famously, this good leader will come from a, 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 a quiet town, uh, Bethlehem. I don't think Bethlehem shows up anyplace else in the Old Testament aside from in this passage. So from this little bit of nowheresville, there's going to come a new ruler, a new leader, someone who's going to stand. And if you picked up on the phrase uh, in the midst of the passage, it says that this person will stand and he will shepherd his people. Now, a shepherd is a very common image of good kings of Israel. King David, for instance, was a shepherd. Uh, and all the good kings were supposed to be have that quality, the quality of care for their sheep. A good shepherd doesn't fleece their sheep. A good shepherd cares for their sheep. Uh, think of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because my good shepherd is with me, and he's going to watch out for me. Jesus, of course, refers to himself as the good shepherd. I sent around a, a picture uh, in my email Show of hands, who saw the picture? All right, that's less than a quarter. So uh, this picture was, it was from an artist named Warner Salmon. Has anybody heard of Warner Salmon? Excusing those who have actually read my note. <laughs> Warner Salmon, according to a New York Times article in 1994, was the best uh, known artist of the century, uh, beating Picasso, beating a Warhol by landslide. What was the painting that he painted that made him so famous? Well, there are very few paintings that I, I could describe and you'd actually know what I'm talking about. Like I couldn't describe a Picasso painting and you have any idea, mainly because I know very little bit about Picasso, but you probably couldn't recognize it either. But I can guarantee that, let me describe this painting and you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the one of Jesus. He's looking over into, uh, up into heavens uh, a little backlight. Uh, his hair is long and flowing, a very ironic uh, gaze. It's the picture that hung in almost every church, especially a Baptist church, until the 90s when it, it kind of fell on hard times a little bit. So does everyone know the picture I'm talking about? That's Warner Salmon. Uh, and that's what made him the most famous. If you have any questions, you can see the picture on the, uh, uh, as you exit, it's, uh, it's, it's out in the reception area. And this painting was reproduced over 500 million times. And this painting was given to every serviceman that went to World War II in a little pocket-sized uh, pocket photo given to the servicemen. And what accounts for its popularity? What accounts for the popularity of this painting is not its uh, historical accuracy. Jesus was not an Anglo-Saxon man with flowing brown hair. It's not as critical a claim. No one, no one with any credentials liked this painting. Well, what made this painting so popular is that it captured something of the character that you anticipate in someone who will be a shepherd. Right, someone who's going to care for others. Uh, a, a, a man for others. And interestingly, this painting has uh, shown up in some profound moments of injustice. So uh, the author Paul Zoll writes this. He says, it's touching, supremely touching, that the New York Times photograph in April 2002 
of a little funeral procession for Pakistani Christian women and children killed in a terrorist raid on a crowded chapel captured this arresting image. One of the men in that ragged cluster of people holding a picture of Solomon's Jesus. The same is true of the aftermath of 9-11, a man stumbling through the rubble holding a copy of Solomon's painting. Why? Because that painting represented what they needed in those really profound moments of injustice. Someone who was for them, a good shepherd who will lay down their life for their sheep, someone not like the leaders in Micah's day, someone who exceeds our, the best expectations of leaders today, someone who is for you. I feel like in my past 10 to 15 years, if you can indulge me in one personal uh, story, in the past 10 to 15 years, I can point to two moments where I've, I've just felt like I've been treated unfairly. I'm not talking about uh, getting cut off in traffic. I am talking about two occasions in which I felt like I was consciously and consistently treated unfairly. And I bet that puts me above average. I bet most of you have more than two occasions in the past 10 to 15 years where you can think, you know, I was just, it felt like someone was out to get me. And it felt like that way because it, at least in part that was true. And it's one of the worst places you can be. You feel alone. I felt alone. You don't know who to trust. I didn't know who to trust. Uh, and in each of these two occasions that I have in mind, I stumbled upon a Bible verse, and that Bible verse said something to the effect of, don't be dismayed. Don't be dis dismayed in front of your enemies. I will take care of you. It's a, a from the prophet Jeremiah. And in each occasion, in really pretty miraculous ways, what I felt was miraculous ways, that's exactly what happened. I felt like God intervened, and he intervened for me. And I don't mention that to, to give myself a little halo or to pat myself on the back. I mention that because if you're anything like me, you have, you're not really comfortable praying a very common Old Testament prayer, which is, vindicate me, O God. But that's, that is all throughout the Psalms. Vindicate me, O God, against... And I think one of the reasons that we're uncomfortable praying that prayer is because, especially if you've grown up in a Protestant church, you're very familiar with this idea that no one is righteous. No, no, no one is righteous. No one is good. No, not one. And that's true. No one is righteous. But just because no one is righteous doesn't mean occasionally you can't be right. And occasionally you can't be being wronged. And I think God is especially attentive to the prayers from those who are being treated unjustly. A parable from Jesus, he says, uh, a woman, a widow, approached an unjust judge and kept on knocking on the door, pleading her case because she was treated unfairly. And this is from the mouth of Jesus. He says, Jesus says that because this woman keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice. And Jesus' point is not that God is like the unjust judge. The, the point of the parable is that you and I should be like the persistent widow who keeps on knocking. 
knocking on the door by holding on to the image of Christ in Solomon's painting. The image of Christ who is a good shepherd who cares for and guards his sheep. Knocking on the door through prayer. So there we are. The problem is leaders who are unconcerned with the plight of those people they lead. The answer is someone who does. Someone born in Bethlehem, someone who will stand as a good shepherd, a good shepherd who is for his people, a good shepherd that is captured in Solomon's painting, a good shepherd who will in fact lay down his life for his sheep. A problem, a solution. I want to end with just a word of encouragement, perhaps a word of caution as well. I look out on our congregation, I know that all of us have some responsibilities for leadership. I know that some of us have really significant responsibilities for leadership, but all of us have some. And I just want to remind us that one of the primary concerns of anyone in a leadership position must be for justice for those whom they lead. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I would only add one slight addendum to that very powerful sentiment. The arc of justice is long and it bends towards history because it's bent uh, towards history. It's bent towards history like, by men like Martin Luther King Jr. and others who bend history that direction. History doesn't bend that way on its own. If you are in a position of leadership, let me scratch that, you are in a position of leadership, therefore you must be concerned with justice for those whom you lead. If justice sounds too global, too national, of a, you, know, you have to have some big concern, just focus on fairness. That's a little bit more down to earth, isn't it? Will your leadership be typified by fairness? Those people you respond, this person treated me, I may not have always agreed with them, but they treated me fairly. Will that be true of you and your leadership? I hope so. Proverbs uh, 28 verse 5 says this. And here we approach our conclusion. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Why? Because God is just. And those who draw near to him understand justice. So a problem, the problem in Micah's day is not fairness. Life is never fair. The problem in Micah's day is that leaders who are ambivalent to injustice, ambivalent to a lack of fairness. The solution, well, the ultimate solution is a good leader, someone who will come from Bethlehem, someone who will stand and shepherd his people. So turn to him, turn to him especially, especially when you feel life is just not fair. Finally, an encouragement to not be like the leaders of Micah's day who are ambivalent, to injustice. Instead, be like the good shepherd, born in Bethlehem, the man who was for others.